We're going to be in John chapter 13 today, if you want to turn there. But I want to set up this scripture by reminding you of another story that's in the Bible. Jesus is walking toward Capernaum one day, and his disciples are with him. And I don't know if they're in front of him or in back of him, but he noticed a kind of a commotion going on. They're just adamantly talking back and forth, and hands are being shaken all over the place, and they're pointing fingers and pointing fingers back at themselves. And they're walking along the road, and I imagine Jesus is kind of going, huh, I wonder what's going on here. And he knew what was going on, but he's just watching this. And so they get to Capernaum, and he brings them all into a room to get apart from the crowds that were always following them for some personal discipleship with them. And he says, so tell me, what were you guys so adamantly and expressively and um, just going after each other on the road about? What, what was going on with that? Now, they knew that Jesus knew. But so none of them wanted to say anything. They're just kind of like, uh, nothing. Uh, yeah, no, no. yeah. Trying, trying to play dumb with God isn't a good idea because, you know, he's God. And so Jesus said, okay, so I know you were talking about which one of you is the greatest among the rest of you. He said, so let me show you which one of you can be the greatest. And he, he walks out of the room, opens the door walks out, finds probably a toddler child, one or two years old, brings him in, puts him among the disciples, said, if you want to be great, you need to become like this little child right here. And I want to bring that kind of idea because it's one that should really make us search our soul. And the message that Jesus is trying to convey is, he said, you guys... You are all concerned with the, who is the greatest and who is the best and who, who, who should be the first among you. But really what you need to be is just like this child. You need to be completely dependent upon someone else for everything. A toddler child cannot survive on their own. A one-year-old is just learning how to walk. They're, they're kind of, they have that little toddler cute wobble that they do, and they fall down a lot and all that. But if you put that child out into the woods out there, it's, it's, it's not going to be able to survive on its own. It needs a higher power or a parent, if you want to look at it that way, to take care of it. And that is the same kind of thing that Jesus is telling us. And I want to have that story kind of in the back of our head as we read our primary scripture today. So John 13, starting in verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that his time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, no, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. 
Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, the person who has had a bath need only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, though not every one of you. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said that not everyone is clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Father God, we ask, Lord, that you just open up your word to us this morning. Father, let it judge the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. Let it penetrate to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Let it change our thinking and let it teach us to live more and more for you and make us more like Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So our big idea today is a question that we're going to ask of this scripture is what was Jesus doing by washing his disciples' feet? And that question can be broken up into two things. What did it mean then, and what does it mean for us today? Well, the first thing Jesus was teaching is teaching servanthood. Now, when we look at what it meant for them back in the first century of the church, you have to consider the, the uh, world that they lived in. First of all, most people walked everywhere. Not very many people had horses. Not many people even really had donkeys that they rode around. If they had any animals, they were livestock or like oxen or something to help them plow. It wasn't something that they used to, to get them around. I mean, if, if Whitehall was, was Nazareth at the time, people wouldn't hop on a horse to, to go up to Clippers. They would walk up there to the market to, to get food or walk up to a well to get water. So people would walk, and mostly what they would wear are sandals. They didn't really have fully enclosed shoes. They wore mostly sandals. They're in a, a fairly desert, arid climate, so that's just what they wore. They didn't have you know, closed-top shoes very often. And so you would walk, be walking down the, the trails and the roads and everything else, and whatever was in the road is what you were walking through. Now, there were cattle being driven back and forth. There were sheep being driven back and forth. There were, you know, the Roman centurions would come through on their horses and their chariots and everything. So not only is, is there dirt in the road, there's, there's you know, various amount of, of animal waste in the thing. And you're walking through this with sandals. Now, obviously, I don't think they would purposely step in it, but you would still get probably some of this just because. So the idea of washing feet was a sign of hospitality. If you were invited to a person's house, it was expected that the host of the house, the master of the house, would wash the feet of the people who came in. 
And the reasons were because of what we just talked about. And it was considered a common courtesy. Now, you remember the story of Jesus visiting the Pharisee's house, that Jesus um, had a kind of a mild rebuke for him where he says, you know, I came into your house and you didn't give me water for my feet. You didn't give me oil for my head. You didn't um, even extend me the common courtesies that we have in our cultures because you had no respect for me. And by not doing so, it was a great insult to the guest and it showed that the, guest, that the host did not honor you. And that's what Jesus was rebuking him for. So this was a sign of hospitality. So if you were to come to my house, then I would have a servant to wash your feet. Now, this wasn't only just a a common courtesy. It was a hygiene issue because you had people, they didn't sit at a table and eat their suppers. They reclined at a table. There were generally mats on the ground and they would be kind of leaning on one elbow and eating and they would be kind of next to each other and some people would be laying this way and some people would be laying that way. So your feet, you know, would be rubbing all up against on people and, and all that. So it was a hygiene issue. I mean, you don't want flies buzzing around your table, right, because of your feet. So that's, that was, you know, one of the big reasons why people would wash their feet. And this task was reserved for the lowliest servant in the house. I mean, this is one something you assign the chief butler to. This is probably the slave you just bought. They just started working for you. It was the one you don't even really know that well. You don't respect them that well. I mean, if you think about this, this is the dirty work person, isn't it? This is a person that is going to be the one that opens the door, leads you over to a bench, sits down, and they're going to provide the most intimate service to you, though, if you think about it. It's kind of ironic that the lowest person in the house does the most intimate thing with you in washing your feet. I know a lot of people that don't like touching clean feet, much less feet that are covered with, well, doo-doo. And, but if you think about it, isn't this exactly what Jesus did for us? Isn't it? He welcomed, he opened the door to heaven for us. He welcomed us into the house, said, hey, I'm really happy to see you. Let me wash this junk off of you right now. Not just our feet, but he cleansed every single part of us. And he did it not with just water, not with just something in a basin, but with his very life blood. We just celebrated that with Holy Communion. How precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. And he's modeling to us the same lowliness he as Almighty God showed us by coming and dying for our sins, by washing the feet of his disciples. That's just amazing grace. Second thing Jesus is doing here was breaking pride in the hearts of his disciples. He we talked to, to put this in perspective, we talked about the disciples arguing who was going to be the greatest. And as I was preparing for this this week, I saw on social media a video on something called GodTube. It's the Christian alternative to YouTube. And it was a social experiment. And what happened is this man went down and he put on some raggedy clothes, made himself look like a beggar, and he sat down on a busy street corner in New York City. And people, and rich people, obviously rich, powerful people would be coming by him, dressed in Armani suits and everything. And they would think, you know, okay, I'll toss this guy a buck or something. And, you know, here, 
you low life, you know, here, take a buck from me. But the man would take the money and say, you know what? No, I want to bless you. And he'd pull a 20 out of his pocket and say, here, let me bless you and give you money. The reactions of these people were incredible. These people would curse him. These people would, who are you to give me money? Don't you know who I am? And they would like kick at him and they would spit on him. I mean, a guy even spit on him and said, who are you to give me money? And it was just such a scornful reaction, and the pride was so obvious and disturbing. I, I, I was sitting at my computer watching this, and I'm going, man, these people are just jerks. They wouldn't want to accept something from somebody else or, or be helped by somebody else. And I'm, I'm just thinking, man, these people are such jerks. And God said, yeah, you can be like that too, can't you? I just don't like it when God does that to me sometimes. But I do because the, the result is good. And God used that time, or used that video to remind me of the time when I was the same way. A few years ago, I had um, arthroscopic knee surgery. And, they and what happened is I was um, both outside of work and at work, I ended up tearing my ACL ligament. If you don't know what that is, it's a ligament that goes straight across. It keeps your, your thigh bone from going over the top of your knee, so when it holds it in place. And that got ripped in half. And it also tore the cartilage between, called the meniscus, between the knee and the, and the shin bone. And so I had to go have surgery. Now, when I got out of surgery, my knee is like completely wrapped. They said that, you know, the damage was a little worse than they thought. And they said, you can't put any weight on it at all, zero weight for like a few weeks. And they said, you're pretty much, you're going to go home now and you're going to sit on the couch and your wife's going to have to do everything for you. Now, Tammy will tell you I'm a fairly independent person, and I don't like that. And when I said she had to do everything for me, I mean everything. I mean, I can't get up off the couch, and probably nobody's going to want to go sit on my couch anymore, but um, no, no. nobody, <laughs> there was a lot of padding down there. But I actually had to use, had to actually use the bathroom in the living room out of our old house. I mean, we, okay, girls, you got to go, daddy's got to use the bathroom. And... I mean, because I couldn't make it down the hall because our hall was really narrow and I couldn't get down there with my crutches. So I had to actually use the bathroom. I had to be totally and completely dependent upon everything and everybody. And I remember, you know, people trying to help me and, and going to physical therapy. And if you ever had a knee injury, one of the first things they do in physical therapy is they tell you, okay, get on this bicycle and pedal a bike. Well, if you've ever had knee pain, Pedaling a bike is like the last thing you want to do. But they're doing this on purpose, and she's like turning the, the, the gauge up to make it harder and harder, and I'm sitting there going, oh, oh. and then I had this, this voice in the back of my head go, you wimp, you total wimp, you're showing her that you're in pain? What? And I was like, oh, yeah. I just put on a blank face and said, okay, I'm going to go. And I'm going to go. And I remember, you know, it's like, I can't show pain. I can't show I'm a wimp. And I remember, you know, going to church and people wanting to open doors or help me carry stuff and all this. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm a man. I'm a man. I got this. I got this. I don't need your help. I don't need your help. And this is the kind of thing that God was convicting me of, is having the same kind of mindset that these people in New York were having with this beggar guy. It's like, I don't need anybody. I don't need any help. I'm better than that. And you know what that is? It's sinful pride. And it's the same pride shown by those person in the video. And just like Peter in this story, refusing to allow Jesus to serve him, 
We don't like to appear weak and receive anything from anybody, including help when we most need it. Why is it that we can be going through hell on earth, but we don't feel we can drop the mask that we have on our face long enough for our church family to come alongside us and be the church for us? I mean, it's, it's almost like that thing where I don't want people to think I'm a wimp, so I'm not going to show any pain. I'm just going to have that, that passive face on and smile and, 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 and try to show you that I'm, 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 you know, I'm tough. I don't need you. And is it any wonder, if we all have this kind of an attitude, why the world doesn't see us as a hospital that we should be? We're all kind of like Simon Peter, aren't we? We all refuse the very gift that Jesus Christ has given to help the world, and especially the family of believers. And that gift is the church. It's our church family. Third thing Jesus was doing was that he was modeling humility. Now consider for a moment the great humility of just washing his disciples' feet. And then consider the great humility shown by God through Jesus. Jesus is God. He is absolutely perfect. And he who was without sin became sin for us. Think about that for a moment. He who is utterly perfect, who has never actually touched or gone anywhere near sin, became sin for you and I. That means the sin that you have committed in your life, he had to touch that. He had to become that for you so that we may have the righteousness of God. Now think about how condescending that is. And when I say condescending, I'm not talking about, you know, the kind of person who would, who would like spit on a person trying to help them. It's not always a bad thing. It's about being humble enough not to appear superior to somebody else. It would be like me coming in and saying big theological terms that you don't even understand to make myself look good. But what I'm talking about here is God being so incredibly condescending to you and I, that the greatest being in the universe became one of his own creations to save them from themselves. I can't even come up with an adequate way to describe that. It's like John said, if, if everything that Jesus said or did was ever written down, it would, there wouldn't be enough books in the world for it. There's not any inadequate analogy or comparison to try to, to try to give justice to the incredible act of love that God has shown us. The best thing I can come up with is us being willing to become a microbe, to save microbes that are intent on destroying me. It would be like if I caught the Ebola virus, me saying, God, I want to become the Ebola virus to try to save other Ebola viruses, even though they are trying to kill me. Jesus even told them, you know what? You are not going to understand what I am going to do now. You're not going to understand this, guys. But you will when it's all finished. 
Your mind is still set back there in the Old Testament. You're still worried about who is the greatest. You're still worried about how you're going to be seen by man. You're still worried about position in an earthly kingdom. But that is not what I have come to do. You're not going to understand it. Your mind isn't right yet. You can't even comprehend what I'm doing now, much less what I'm about to do on the cross in a few hours. Some things are only spiritually discerned and can't be explained. And if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, you know that truth more and more. I can teach you a truth, but until the Spirit really gets into your heart and, decide, and really teaches it to you, you'll never come into a full understanding. There has been truths in God's word that he just explodes in me more and more. I've read, you know, I've read the Bible through several times, several times, at least once a year. And, but just you read it and it just pops in more and more because the Spirit speaks that rhema word, that living, breathing word of God into your heart and makes it just become alive to you so that you can change and be more like Jesus. And the humility shown by Jesus by washing the feet of his disciples was a beautiful picture of what he was about to do on the cross. He was about to wash them clean from all the dirt in this world. The fourth thing Jesus was doing is he was preparing a vessel to carry the gospel message. Romans says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The word gospel literally means good news. He was saying, I'm going to prepare your heart through the washing of your feet to carry this message. It's going to be symbolic to the kind of people that you need to become and that you are going to become through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? You don't have to worry about comparing each, uh, what each other are doing. You don't have to worry. Peter, you don't have to worry about what John's going to do. John, you don't have to worry about what Thaddeus is going to do. You're not going to have to worry. You're not going to be comparison because I have a commission for you that is individual. Your mission is going to be completely different from the other. So you won't even be able to compare or even have to make this decision or even want to make this decision of who is the greatest again. That's why it's very important to fulfill your ministry. You know what? Every single person here is called to the ministry. Every single person. Whether that position is a pastor who stands before the congregation and teaches them every week, or whether it's somebody who cares for people, whether it's somebody who helps people, whether it's somebody who teaches a Sunday school or has a, um, a ministry of helps, a ministry of pro prophetic ministry maybe, an intercessory ministry, it's all different and you are all called to the ministry. My job is to help you discover what that ministry is and help you flourish in it. Fulfill your ministry. The last thing Jesus was showing through the washing of the feet is he was giving us an example of mutual submission. Now we can agree that Jesus was over the top of the disciples. Yet he humbled himself and showed an, an example of mutual submission with one another. 
Consider how almighty God humbled himself by becoming Jesus. And Paul in Philippians paints a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. When he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. That's just worth worshiping him right now. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. This idea of mutual submission is key to healthy church. It's key to healthy marriages, key to healthy family, but in particular, it's a key to being a healthy church, particularly between the lay leadership and the pastor. You hear about churches just disintegrating and falling into all kinds of things because the board and the, and the pastor just can't get along. Tammy, if you and Jennifer could come back up, please. And in the Assemblies of God, we are a very pastor-driven fellowship. We are. We have always put the pastor up front and said he is in charge of the church. And that's a rich tradition. But it's also one that's been abused over the years. I can tell you that in my way of thinking, I prefer elder-driven churches. I talked with the board about this this last week. Where the pastor is simply the first among equals with the other elders. We can't change the way that we are as a church right now because of our status as a a uh, district supervised church, but it, I want to model that for you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Jesus. I thank you for your word. And I ask, Father, that we have the very attitude of Christ Jesus, that you would teach us to be humble that you would teach us, Father, to be mutually submissive to each other. That in love, we will make ourselves nothing. Because really, Lord, we are nothing apart from you. So, Father, as we enter back into this time of worship, in this altar time, Father, I ask, Lord, that what we are about to do will just cement that in everyone's minds. Lord, I ask this in your name. Conrad, Chris, and Roger, could you come to the front, please? Pastor Roger, you too, please come to the front. Have a seat on that pew, if you could. Yep. I cleared it off for you. I'm going these men up here are the leaders of this church ones that I have come alongside and ones that serve with me in serving you 
I recognize them as elders in this church and as fellow laborers in the kingdom of God. So I want to bless them today and show them that, that I love these men. God has given me the best team that I could ever hope for. So just join me in prayer as I bless them. Hi, Pastor John here. I hope and pray that you are blessed by listening to the Word of God being preached today at Whitehall Assembly of God in beautiful Whitehall, Wisconsin. If you'd like more information about us, you can go to our website at www.whitehallassembly.org. Or if you have a question about the sermon, you can email me at pastorjohnoscar at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and God richly bless you as you continue to grow and serve Him.